welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. It's rare these days to find positive stories when it comes to climate, species at risk, and loss of habitat. But the story of the Klinzee Za caribou herd in British Columbia is a positive one, with many people playing a role in bringing the herd back from near exportation over the last decade. Over the span of a couple episodes, we're going to talk to a few of the people who contributed to the success of this project. Up first, Scott McNay of Wildlife Infometrics. How, how would you frame it to explain to somebody what you do for a living? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we, uh, we have a little bit of a different model in, in wildlife infometrics. We, uh, both my uh, wife and I uh, run the business and we're both uh, researchers at heart. We, we grew up in the research community. Um, I used to work in the research branch of the, of the uh, Ministry of Forests in Victoria in British Columbia here years ago. And uh, that's, we both got our start in that. And so our model is more about uh, research than it is about uh, like a typical consulting firm doing, uh, you know, monitoring business and that sort of stuff. Uh, we, we, we apply for research grants and then we look for partners to, uh, to help uh, bump up that, that amount of money. And we run our projects on that basis. We propose, we propose the, the research and, and, and get grants to, to achieve it. And uh, so that's our, that's our company. We, it's a small company. We have about 10 people or so. And, and uh, that's what kind of led us into the, the whole caribou world, actually. Now we're, talking, we're talking about one population in particular, because it's a project that's got quite a bit of attention. Um, and my understanding is with that, that herd was down to 16 animals in 2013. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The Klimsies that herd, we call it. Um, it's a uh, it's a real a real interesting story. Um, you know, thirty five years ago, when I was a young biologist, I never ever dreamt of um, having an opportunity to work with a, a group of people on a a large, iconic, and majestic species like caribou. But uh, this herd was down to to sixteen, and and. Uh, the First Nations communities that we work with um, took it upon themselves to uh, to do something about that herd. It was they had just lost a herd um, to the south called the burnt pine herd. It had gone down to basically one animal, so we call that functionally extirpated. And uh, they saw this other herd at sixteen and said, "Well, we can't we can't have another herd go away." So. So they took it upon themselves to start a recovery program on that on that particular caribou herd. And what were the first steps to recovery? The you know the first steps um, were to basically build a plan to get stakeholders and all the users of the land on board with with helping out on this recovery program because it's a. a it's a huge cost, and and uh, so the first steps were actually meetings to uh, to to get people on board, uh, build a recovery plan that was acceptable to both the federal and provincial governments, and that recovery plan was based on three fundamental principles. One was to uh, one was to do some wolf removal uh, because we wanted to do a, a maternity pen, which I'll explain in a minute. But the maternity pen. 
requires to keep caribou safe. You didn't want to keep them safe and then release them out into a wild full of wolves. So we, we had to remove wolves first and build the maternity pen. And then the last big part of this program is habitat restoration. That's fundamentally the most important part, part because, you know, it was the uh, change in habitat that's actually led to that decline in the herd down to 16 animals. So, so fundamentally, it's about restoring habitat and getting habitat back in shape where caribou can survive on their own without those other measures like wolf removal and mat panning. And the changes in habitat are part of what led to, I don't want to call it the wolf problem, but maybe the overabundance of wolves. Yeah, I mean, historically, you know, again, if you can imagine caribou are a, a a species that really represents ecosystems based on wilderness and and with very little disturbance to the land base and so with disturbance to the land base that comes from you know uh, resource extraction be it mining be it uh, uh, oil and gas or forestry uh, it you know it changes the landscape into an early cereal or a young kind of uh, vegetation community uh, you know, lots of uh, green forage for species like deer and elk and moose um, and <clears throat> changes it away from the environment that caribou feed on, which is mostly, you know, arboreal lichens or terrestrial lichens and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So it really changes the environment and brings in species that wolves kind of primarily depend on, which are the, the, uh, which are the moose and the deer. And the overabundance of wolves in that case then puts them in closer proximity to caribou. They have better access to caribou range because of the roads and all the easy travel routes that, that are produced when, when, when the resources are extracted. So it, it really changes things for wolves, makes, them a lot, makes it a lot more of them and a lot easier to hunt uh, and get caribou. And the interesting thing about this is that they can they can drive caribou populations to a very low level, coincidentally, but they don't themselves feel any detrimental effect of that decrease in caribou numbers because they always have their primary prey to go back on, uh, like um, uh, the, the the deer and the elk and that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting ecological problem, actually, and, and uh, one that's been put in front of us as a result of resource extraction, primarily. How, how does maternal penning work and where did the idea come from and how is it executed? It, well, first off, let me explain what a maternity pen is. Basically, it's just an area uh, that's enclosed with uh, geotextile fabric hung over wire that's strung around the trees in the bush. And, and uh, it, it, it's, we have electric fence on the outside of that. The caribou are put on the inside during the calving period. And then that keeps the wolves and the bears away from them and helps keep their calves safe and them and the cows safe as well during during the calving period. So it's all about protecting the cows and the calves during that calving period. Most of the calves die. If if you didn't have that protection, most of the calves would get eaten up within the first, oh heaven's sakes, we've had we've had calves that have only lived a day. Uh, but usually they'll get all beaten up within the first 30 days or so of life. So that's what a maternity pen is. The idea came from the Yukon and, and another pen was built, tried in, in, um, in Little Smoky in Alberta. But neither of those efforts really proved to be very successful. We decided to try it again 
in our situation just because something had to be done to save these calves and it seemed like a good idea so and your pen your pen though has been pretty successful correct it has um i think one of the reasons for that is is its location uh we we decided to put this pen at high elevation in uh in natural calving range and uh it just you know the habitat there provides everything that caribou need at that time of year it's uh they, they need wind to keep the flies down they need cool temperatures they need uh, a source of, of of running water in the spring during calving time and these pens are just perfect for that uh the, the location is perfect for that and i think that has a lot to do with our success actually is the pen is in the right location so so this time of year must be the animals would be in the pen right now or pretty close, right? Because they would have, I would assume, the next month or so. Yeah, we, we put them in uh, first of March. Or well, the second week, uh, first full week of March. Uh, and uh, they've been in there ever since. They're all happy. We got 19 animals in the pen, 19 cows in the pen this year, which is our highest we've ever had. And uh, yeah, they'll calve in May, actually, uh, middle of May to the end of May. And uh, we keep the, the cows and the calves in the pen right until about the end of July, actually. And then we, uh, it, again, because of the location, the release is easy. You just, we just take down part of the pen and the animals walk out right into their natural calving range. So it's a, it's a yeah, good, good little situation for them. So that's a good measure of success right there. You have more animals in the pen this year than existed in the entirety for this herd in 2013. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah. That's impressive. So what's the total mm -hmm. herd size right now? So we had um at the first of March there, we've got 114, 115 animals in the population. So it's a pretty big increase. That's a pretty remarkable feat. Like I mean, when you when you take into consideration all the factors that are involved, you've managed to grow a population of a, a large animal in the wild by the factor of 10. That's incredible. Yeah, we've had, uh, we've had seven overall in the last uh, eight years, we've had 78 um, calves born in the pen and, and uh, 68 of those are still alive, which is pretty amazing, actually, um, given the contrast to the all the calves that were born in the in the wild, probably there's only, you know, maybe 20 of those that are still alive. So it's a it's a pretty big uh, measure of success there in terms of keeping calves alive. Yeah. What other factors kind of led to problems that limited the population of the caribou, not just here, but everywhere in BC? Because uh, you, like you, you mentioned before, we've, we've lost herds in BC. Well, the big one is habitat, you know, the, which leads to that imbalance in the predator-prey system. And so, you know, you get wolves that are the, what we call our, our, um, our proximate cause of decline because it's the thing that actually kills the caribou and, and makes the population decline. But then ultimately, that's uh, because of the habitat. But, but, you know, some other things are, you know, we, we, we were concerned a bit about the nutrition uh, status of caribou in some cases. Uh, there's a lot of research being done on that that indicates that maybe some of the caribou herds are not in the best nutritional status because their food has changed. Um, that could be partly related to climate change, I, I suppose. Um, I think there is that underlying uh, little signal about climate change um, that's always going to be there or that always has been there right from, you know, 1950, middle of the, middle of the century onwards. 
their habitat is slowly changing. Alpine habitats are slowly kind of regressing. And so they have less of that. Uh, we're seeing a climate change increase at a rapid pace. And so we don't know what the future is like for caribou in that sense. So yeah, a little bit of nutrition and which may have a, a little signal back to the, to the climate change issue. Right. So habitat restoration involves exactly what? Because you're talking roads and things that, you know, aren't easy to get rid of. Yeah, one of the other parts of success in this program has been the, um, a, a large expansion to, uh, to protection of habitat through through a park. But it's, you know, it, 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 it encloses a lot of what used to be industrial landscape. And so there's a lot of roads, a lot of cut blocks, uh, you know, all that sort of thing in there. And and so we we the rest habitat restoration is a huge program. It involves going out with big machinery and basically, you know, uh, digging up the road, trying to put it back into a more natural state than it is at you know the, than it exists at current, and uh, planting trees. We do some things to try to slow down predators in a more uh, expedient nature. Like, so for example, we might fall trees or, or pull trees over along the roadside just to kind of block access to that road, that sort of thing. So it's a bunch of big machinery and, and, uh, and a lot of tree planting, that sort of thing. So the, the, the difficult thing about habitat restoration is actually you know this kind of conflict or not conflict but a well it is a conflict between the the goal of of restoring habitat and then and then the the desire of the uh, of industries to to keep those roads open um for purposes of future resource extraction right so that's the difficulty is to find the places where you know it's conceivable that you could achieve a good successful habitat restoration program yeah, and that's a balance we face in everything now, right? It's, it you know. is, yeah. You know, and, that, and, that's, and that's one of the really, what I find to be one of the really interesting parts of this project. I mean, you know, this, 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 this project is, has so many different um, stories to tell about it. I mean, the, the whole recovery of, a, of an iconic species that's about to be extirpated is, is of course, the main story. But, but there's all these others, like what are the consequences of trying to do that on the economy, on culture, on on uh, social aspects, right? That that's really, really an interesting part of this project, and and we're face we face it all the time because we want to recover these caribou. We have to face that issue, and it's it's a it's a really important one. Um, the other another really is part of that is the whole First Nations right to hunt that was granted to them, you know, a century ago in in an agree, uh, you know, a treaty agreement, and they've lost that right. And so, you know, there's that aspect to this project as well, you know, and it, it's just, there's amazing parts to this project that, that are, go way beyond the biology. <laughs> right, and the First Nations have played a huge part in this, right? Oh. Because they originally stopped hunting their caribou because they knew they were coming dangerously close to losing them completely. But not only yeah. that, since that, that was back in the 70s or late 60s, I believe. Um, yep. But even since then, they've been heavily involved in this project, correct? Well, 
Well, they are. You know, this this is their project. Um, You know, BC had a British Columbia had a um, a legal obligation to recover caribou through the Species at Risk Act, but but they they really weren't doing very much toward that end. And then the First Nations decided just to pick up the ball and carry that on their own. And so it is their project. And and they're the ones that that gathered the money and and you know came to me and got me involved in helping them with the recovery plan and managing the project and that sort of thing. So so yeah, it very much and and the the right to hunt and the holding the the BC government to to uh, uh, to be accountable for the disturbance that comes with resource extraction is uh, those two issues you know right to hunt and disturbance levels are are key to the first nations and that's uh, that's really what what this project is is uh, based on in a lot of ways what do you see as the future of the project i uh, i, I want to see this project stand as an example of what it takes to recover a population of caribou to a self-sustaining level where we don't need uh, aggressive and uh, obtrusive recovery actions like wolf removal and mat penning. I want to see those two things fall off, fall away and, and the herd be self-sustainable on, on a recovered habitat, on, on a restored habitat. And, and, then, and then that will stand as an example of what it takes to, to have um, a herd recovered. We'll know how much it costs. We'll know what the social and economic implications are. And uh, we can use that as a basis and a model then for moving forward into other caribou herd areas. That's it for our first look at the Clinzy's uh, Caribou Herd Project. Thanks to producer Sarah Simpson and social media director Alina Simpson for their help this week. Our theme music and sound logo are by Titan Sound, John Sanfilippo. Make sure to tell a friend about the podcast and send them over to the podcast page at northernlatitudes.ca. I'm Bill Alt. Find your way to Northern Latitudes. <laughs>